Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. As regular listeners will know, we've been monitoring the changes facing general practice as we try to weather the various storms of the pandemic, media attacks, rising comorbidities and health inequalities, and constant reorganisation. We thought it's about time to take stock again. For today's GP crisis update, we're joined by one of the leading experts on general practice and new models of care to try to work out what's going on and what changes we might expect over the coming months and years. I'm Tom Nolan. I'm a GP and a clinical editor for the BMJ. And I'm joined by uh, a usual panel, co-presenters, co- uh, Jenny and Navjoy. Uh, hi, Jenny. Hi, Tom. I'm Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a family medicine doctor and clinical editor for the BMJ. And Navjoy, hi. Hello, um, I'm Navjoit Lada. I'm a clinical editor at the BMJ and a locum GP in London. And you're actually at the BMJ offices for the first, I think you're the first time anyone, any of us have been in the BMJ offices actually recording. Ever. <laughs> no, yeah, I am, but I'm in, I'm in a sort of communal area of the office. So I'm hoping it stays quite quiet. <laughs> There's nobody there. For this recording. There's nobody here because we're not meant to be here on a Friday. So there you go. Shh, keep um, it quiet. <laughs> and yeah, and I'll, third guest. I'm delighted to welcome uh, Rebecca Rosen. Hi. Hi, thanks for inviting me on. Thank you for coming. So just tell us um, a bit about yourself, Rebecca, and your your roles. And So I am a GP in South East London at the Jenner Practice, and I am also a senior fellow at the Nuffield Trust, which is a policy research institute, where I do work primarily about um, general practice, but also about digital and remote consulting, and uh, work also about continuity of care and how we make sure that continuity doesn't get lost in the scrabble for access. I remember a few, you, you wrote the a report I often re, so refer to in my mind about fragmentation of no, care. Yes, yes. So There's a great one that, so yeah. uh, appreciation to that. But we're going to, we probably will come back to that theme, won't we? But uh, we thought yeah. we'd start with, um, you know, we, we do obviously so much is changing it in the world and uh, but particularly in, in UK politics. But what, what is going on? Give us a brief overview. Well, where to start with that one? But we do have a new Secretary of State for Health, Therese Coffey. And she, last week in the House of Commons, made a statement about her plans and her vision for the NHS. And obviously, on the steps of Downing Street, Liz Truss said the NHS and restoring NHS services was one of her three priorities. Um, so Therese Coffey's uh, statement was kind of significant in that sense. And I, I thought I'd just give you a kind of summary of what was in it. Um, the whole speech, it wasn't particularly long, but it focused on her, what she calls her ABCD themes, A for ambulances, B for the backlog in surgical waiting lists, C for care and support for the care sector over winter, and D for doctors and dentists. And it was the D that really kind of pertains to general practice. Um, so under that batch of um, uh, of announcements, the main thing, which has now been pretty well publicised, is that she says she's expecting, not promising, not demanding, but expecting that everybody who wants a GP appointment should have one within two weeks. And that if a problem is urgent, an appointment should be offered on the same day. And she also plans to allow community pharmacists to prescribe a small selection of medicines, things like the oral contraceptive pill, without a prescription, which they estimate will free up about one million GP appointments. She's announced that they're going to loosen the controls 
over how money to fund the additional roles in primary care can be spent and um, increase the number of support staff in practices. They're going to pay for new telephone lines to make it easier for people to phone into practices. She's also expecting more transparency about waiting times for appointments. And I think they're planning to publish practice by practice appointment numbers and waiting times starting in November. And she said that integrated care boards are going to hold practices to account um, with an offer to support, in inverted commas, I don't know what that means, but to support the worst performing practices. Um, she did make a few announcements about other things. So 7,000 extra hospital beds, because there's a terrible shortage of hospital beds at the moment. 1.5 billion of extra funding for surgical hubs. Uh, 500 million to support uh, extra care services in local communities and support early discharge. And of course, some announcements about the pension changes, which we hope might help to stem the exit of GPs from clinical practice. How, how do you sort of view that how, or how do others how are others sort of taking this in yeah so that was her shopping list of proposals um I think it's important to say that not much of what she said was new which I guess is good because we're so snowed under with old stuff that actually if we'd been asked to take on a whole list of new actions and demands um I think people would start exploding I and mean, there just is so little capacity for even more change. So I think it's not such a bad thing that um, there wasn't much new. Secondly, I think the elephant in the room is that there simply is not enough appointment capacity to meet demand and there are not enough GPs. And although they're announcing that whole time equivalent GP numbers are up, that's really made up by the new batch of trainees and fully qualified whole time equivalent GP numbers are down so where are we going to get that capacity from and many people have said that third thing that I think is really important is it's great that they're freeing up the constraints on money for the R's roles the additional roles um that it's been far too constrained but she said nothing about the organizational development and the kind of supervision and practice redesign that needs to take place if those roles are going to be introduced successfully and there's some good research now showing if they're badly introduced they really are they add little capacity and the people in those jobs feel miserable and isolated and lots of them leave so getting that right is essential and it needs resources and it really needs funding and there was nothing in there about investment in the organizational support you need to get that right and then so so that means that the two million extra appointments that she thinks that's going to deliver actually may not materialize and overall they've offered three million new appointments or they think that their changes will free up about three million new appointments that are currently given by gps Actually, that's only 1% of the total or less than 1% of the total current annual appointments. So it's really only scratching the surface. Um, yeah, so I think there are some helpful nuggets in there, but it's kind of sticking plaster to a really big yeah. problem. Yeah, thank you. Well, I'd, I'd really like to, to go into more depth on the additional roles in, in a bit. But um, Navjoy, um, I'm not saying you're our kind of Twitter correspondent, but... Um, what, what you, you I know that you uh, follow these things well. What, how's it gone down from for you and and on your Twitter streams? I, I, I guess my sense is that there's um, 
you know, a lot, a lot of times these, you know, we, we hear a lot of these announcements time and time again, and there's a, there's a sort of sense of like, okay, here we go again to a lot of this. Um, and there's also, you know, the, the, you know, I've seen more, more cynical colleagues in sort of Facebook groups and things talk about how, you know, well, at least they haven't blamed us for the economy crashing yet. <laughs> that may come, who knows? Um, but yeah, I, I think there's a sense of this is just feels like, um, you know, th- things we've heard before without the substance behind them to really know how they'll be delivered. And also, you know, I think Rebecca, as you said, you know, there's there's the sort of elephant in the room is the workforce issue. And, and yet again, there seems to be no sort of substantial engagement uh, to address that problem. So that's yeah. my kind of take is that, that, that that's the kind of big, big problem that um, the, these other things, I think, you know, I'm sure voters maybe think yeah two weeks for a gp appointment great but that you know we we all know that um there needs to be more behind it okay i guess if you're the new secretary of state for health you have to say something and so at least at least we can be grateful that yeah something completely new and unrealistic wasn't in in the mix but but am i being too generous i'm not some closet tory but Maybe you are being a bit generous because, I mean, the other thing is, I mean, at the time that we've just recorded it, we're reading reports that um, Therese Coffey and the Department of Health and Social Care have just decided not to publish a long-awaited report into health inequalities. And that's something that, you know, also directly affects the work we do as GPs. And so, it, yeah, to give that kind of, that sort of gen- generosity and sort of benefit of the doubt, I'm I'm struggling to do that at the moment. <laughs> Jenny, what's your take? Because obviously you're now based in Geneva, but trained in the US, worked in New Zealand. And is this the same problems that you're, you've seen everywhere else or that we've talked about before? Just So yes and no. I mean, the, the systems are obviously very different. Um, I think the thing that really jumps out at me as this insoluble universal problem is the shortage of GPs and primary care doctors. I mean, certainly that was something we faced and discussed and are still dealing with extensively in New Zealand. Um, You know, we saw this in so many ways and shapes um, across different periods of lockdown in New Zealand. Um, And basically kind of health decision makers have really been unable to provide a clear strategy that seems viable and which makes sense to existing GPs as to how they're going to rapidly increase the healthcare workforce and solutions that have been offered, um, similar to what you were saying, Rebecca, only really seem to scratch the surface. Yeah, I mean, I think the, uh, you know, the policy announcements from, I think, 2019, about 26,000 extra roles in general practice was a big vision. It was ambitious and 26,000 is a big number. But going back to what I said, those people have to be recruited. And, you know, as soon as we started recruiting paramedics, the ambulance service ran into trouble because they were losing um, ambulance staff and couldn't recruit enough. Pharmacists were a really interesting kind of exception because we'd been overtraining pharmacists. But then nurses, we we need more nurses in primary care, but there aren't enough nurses. So there will be a, a loss to hospitals if we pull them in. So it is tricky. And then I would, again, re-emphasise that point. If you don't introduce the roles well, they can be duplicatory. If people don't have the confidence to see the people, the patients that they're asked to see, they'll send them back to the doctor. So it duplicates. 
it doesn't land well. So it needs really, really careful redesign to address that. And and the other thing that's really important to remember is public expectations, that we've still got people kind of expecting and wanting to see the GP and not nearly enough done about selling the skills of the other professions. If I had back pain, I'd actually much rather see a physio in my practice than the GP most of the time. So, and I think a lot of people who aren't medically trained don't appreciate that. So I think there's a big challenge there as well. Yeah, the one of the headings of, from, I've got it open on, on my screen here, primary care meeting public expectations is one of the headings from the um, the plan, our plan for patients, uh, which, um, how can we put this, I suppose expectations are influenced by various things, aren't they, particularly by media and, um, and it's obviously a big political thing you want to, if you meet the public's expectations then you'll you'll get more votes when the time comes, but um do you think we should be doing more to, to manage expectations or, or alter or what could we do? Yes, I really yeah. do. So, you know, through my Nuffield um, policy role, I spend quite a lot of time with uh, policymakers arguing very strongly that they need public campaigns, they need information campaigns, they need to absolutely push this narrative that your GP works as part of a team, that you can get perfectly good care. Not always, but in some situations, you can get perfectly good care from other clinicians, that that's fine. Um, And there's so some of the research that I'm involved in about the switch to remote general practice is highlighting that if people don't like the consultation they've been offered, don't feel satisfied, it hasn't met their expectations, they just choose another door to go through. So they ring 111 or they go to 999 or they go to A&E and then they may be booked back into general practice by that system. So it's really important that we tackle understanding and expectations. Um, can I just ask one um, one question, Rebecca, which is one thing that you hear um, GPs and GP leaders sometimes saying, and something we've talked about on this podcast is the need to have a kind of honest conversation with the kind of public about what general practice can do. So obviously there's all that kind of informational you know campaigns that are needed to sort of educate about the wider team but what what do you think do you think there's a gap in kind of actually what general practice can deliver that maybe we need to get better at sort of discussing um I think that gets back to how uh innovative GPs are able to be in thinking about how they deliver their services because It is, you know, a lot of people don't like change and there are some really interesting model practices around the country and around the world. It's not just in England where there's a totally different kind of ratio of doctors to other workers, psychologists, um, health coaches, navigators. And what's happened in the UK over 10 years of austerity is that the services that people used to go to rather than the GP, systems advice, bureau, welfare, support, organizations have closed so we've got all of that stuff coming into general practice and we don't necessarily do a brilliant job of demedicalizing that and getting other people to work with us so I think if you reconstruct your thoughts about general practice and it is happening with these multi-professional teams and you bring into that more of the care navigators of the social prescribers 
and we are get much much better than we are now about steering people at the front door yes you're in the gp practice but this is a kind of hub for a wider range of things there are some practices that are doing that now until we do that we're just overwhelmed and you know we can't deal with it all but another approach would be to think really differently and think and you know one example of that is the nuka health system in alaska and when somebody said come and learn from the nuka health system in alaska i thought that's ridiculous you know how can you possibly transpose anything from that of, of that to england or london or whatever but they've got some really interesting holistic approaches that i think I personally, I think I'd really enjoy it, but it is a huge intellectual and organisational challenge to kind of swap from where we what are. What do they do? What, what, what? Um, they think about how, so they think about the problems that people come in with in three buckets. One of which is simple routine and standardised. One of which is kind of ongoing and more complex, and one of which is the really complicated stuff end of life, social and physical and mental health mixed together, frailty, cancer treatment, you know, the really complicated patients. And they have a very different skill mix. So they have um, a, a smaller number of GPs compared to us, compared to the rest of the workforce. They have they split them into teams so that they know their patients and they give them continuity. They have nurses that do long-term conditions. They have people doing standardised tasks like smears and immunisations who, you know, they, they, they use their workforce carefully. They have psychologists, they have social workers, and they understand the different types of problems that people have and steer them to that kind of care, but still keeping them within a team where um, the, the lead GP and a couple of the other clinicians know them and give them continuity when they've got complex problems. Um, can I ask you a bit about whenever I see um, you know, vanguards or you know case studies or an example like that, which sounds brilliant, I, I, I don't know, my inner cynic gets a bit uh, <laughs> up and, and I think to myself, that's great, but you know, how, how would we actually do this across the board? You know, that you need, it feels to me that you need such a high level of um, well, resource, but also expertise, experience. You know, you need all, all those ingredients that that you get with the, you know, the, those practices and, and those examples. And it's perhaps not fair to say, well, look at what they're doing. You should you should do this because we just don't have the skills and resource to do that. I was going to say exactly the same thing. Um, you know, you can think of so many really hyper-local examples of individuals coming together with a really specific mix of skill sets, really kind of specific um, attributes that come together to make this really lovely mix that's working for that community. But to think about moving that from local to system-wide just feels impossible. Yeah, so I think that's a really fair challenge. And um, we put some case studies up recently and I, I, we were challenged in the same way that local practices don't learn from that. Actually, the case studies were put there more for policymakers to look at, to think about how do you create a context where quite substantial change is possible? Because you can't change in the context that we're in now where we're running so fast to stand still and so berated and so demoralised that nobody has the energy to think about transformation. It's just not going to work. So, and that's why I, I, I talked 
earlier in this discussion about a significant investment in organisational development support. Yeah, you cannot do this on a shoestring. You cannot do it when everybody's run ragged, just trying to do the day job. It's too complicated. But what you can do, I think, is um, support a small number of organisations and not just the usual suspects who are 80% of the way there anyway, where it just takes a tiny bit extra to show a kind of glossy end product, but to really support um, some organisations that are kind of up for change to make those changes. And that's not sending in a national management consultancy to tell them what to do. That's investing in extra staff on the ground, managers, data analysts, clinicians, to really work out how you transform and change and and do that. But you say it's pie in the sky. Um, I've talked to some New Zealand um, uh, primary care GP leaders before, and their narrative has been to say to people, well, you think it's rubbish what I'm saying, but can you really see yourself carrying on doing what you're doing now for another 10 years, particularly when two of the partners in your practice are going to resign or retire or whatever? And the answer there is always no. So what do you want to do about it if it's not be supported and enabled to think differently? And if you turn it around that way, maybe you'll get a few more takers. That's true. The status quo is kind of unsustainable as it is. And actually, we do hear from um, our listeners who there is this appetite to learn more about about sort of solutions and, you know, to hear more about what other practices are doing. And and maybe, is you know, that, that may not, without that investment, be that kind of big sweeping change. But just small things that, that people can do, I think there's a, there's a space for that too um, as well. I think that's a really interesting question because making small change is really it's almost as hard as making big change it's you can do it a bit quicker but it's really hard and particularly when you've got part-timers so I work part-time and I forget you know because I'm not there every day things that I learned about the new system if I haven't used it for three weeks because I haven't had a patient that needs whatever it is I've kind of forgotten it um so it's hard making change and I think that's something that's really worth thinking about actually is it easier to make one really quite big change that makes some fundamental shifts in the way that we operate or just marginal little erosions that will help a little bit but actually don't change the big picture? Um, Around to when I, I tried to change the, um, you know, tidy up the folders on our shared drive and make them a bit less um, all over the place. And I got a lot of... Uh, <laughs> I, I caused a lot of waves doing all the yeah, shortcuts yeah. you messed up so, Tom. <laughs> yeah. so I definitely I was oh, well bother next time I'll just leave it and that it, it. <laughs> so maybe a big change would have been better like a whole new intranet or something um do you, just going back to that thing about uh giving support to practices I mean there is something in in the plan um about requiring local NHS integrated care boards to hold practices to account and provide support to those practices is that <laughs> well, well does that count there but but also when I read that I thought isn't that their job anyway and what, why if why do we need to say that are they, are they not doing very well at that already yeah I mean I think until now it's been clinical commissioning groups that have done that and over the years the relationships have built up so you can you can hold people to account in different ways and that can be anything from being positive and 
um, enabling of improvement if you see problems to screaming and berating and you know people have had lots of different experiences so and, and then with the formation of the integrated care boards um, a lot of those relationships that did exist with local primary care leads in local CCGs have gone so people have got to get used to new you know colleagues to negotiate with so I think um, it I think as a principle, data transparency is a good thing. Um, uh, they've said that they're going to ask the integrated care boards to offer support. They haven't said what that means to the poorest performing practices. Um, the NHS track record of support is quite variable. At its best, it's fantastic. You get extra resources and extra people to come and help you to learn what to do. One of the things we did in my primary care network was to try and encourage peer learning between our member practices. So if one person was doing, we'd, we'd look at our data and if somebody was doing something really well, we'd suggest that the practice managers actually met up and learned what the other people were doing. So I think peer-led review and improvement is a really good methodology. But it takes time. You've got to get the peers to meet together. They're going to take time off clinics. You have to be able to backfill that. So, uh, you know, I think as a as a general rule of thumb, peer support for peer led improvement would be great. Uh, having people breathing down your neck and shouting at you because you're performing badly wouldn't be. So I hope we go for the former and not the latter. But we shall see. Yeah. Well, can I just ask, and I, I apologize if I missed this in the kind of, kind of confusion with the connectivity earlier, but what you said, Rebecca, about kind of um, part-time workers and where, like, what kind of this means, are we leaning into a shift and understanding that more people are going to be working full-time or? So I, I, the reason I think that's a really important question, I, I said when I introduced myself that I'm really passionate mm. about continuity. And with more and more part-time GPs, I, I've given up personally thinking you can have continuity for everybody. And also, I do lots of interviews with patients and staff about consulting. Lots of people don't want continuity. So a healthy young person with a single episode of a bad sore throat doesn't really care who they see as long as they get the sore throat sorted. And you could be a part-timer, you could be a locum, it doesn't matter but if you are presenting four or five times with the same problem, as we heard about the tragic, tragic story over the last couple of days of the 26-year-old man who died after four remote consultations, actually, what I feel very strongly about is that we need to be able to spot those patients and, and make sure that they don't just spin around some kind of rapid access system that we know that somebody's come in two, three, four times and we say, right, you are being tagged and you are not going to just be seen by any old locum or part-timer who's never met you before. You are going to be seen by your own doctor who's going to track you until we work out what's going on. And so I think, if you know, I'll get back to the case studies that I just described. We, we have set out some models on the Nuffield Trust website, some models of, of ways that you can organise access to care where you can concentrate the right kind of staff in an acute access hub. And that might be a combination of advanced nurse care practitioners and um, a paramedic and a 
pharmacist and a physio. And you could put your locum and part-time GPs in there who don't necessarily have to know the people coming through. They just need to be clinically competent. But we need a way of finding the people that need continuity and pulling them out of that rapid access arrangement and saying, you need to be seen by somebody who knows you. So I think there are ways of using part-time staff and it's an inevitability. You know, that is the world we are in now. I am really glad that you said that last bit in particular as someone who has only been able to work part-time in a clinical setting over the past few years and who just for a number of lifestyle reasons cannot do full-time clinical medicine, I think it's really important to recognize that yes, there may be a trade-off in terms of continuity, but actually to change the system so that it allows us to accommodate the fact that people aren't going to just work full-time as opposed to shaming people who work on a part-time basis. Yeah. And I have to say, because I've always split my working life between clinical and policy work, I've only ever worked part-time. So I've only ever done two clinical days a week, but I love continuity. I get not much clinical satisfaction from a quick acute issue. And I love the ongoing relationship with people and their families and their kids. So I've always organised my part-time working life, two separate days of the week. I've usually worked Tuesday and Friday. So it's never really, it's never been more than four days until I can see somebody again and it's three working days. And that has enabled me to give pretty good continuity where it's been needed. And if people are really unwell and it really matters that I know their story, I give them my phone number. And um, I uh, probably that happens twice a year. So it's not overly burdensome. They don't use it unless they really have to. So I've never felt irked by it. And um, I've also worked with micro teams so that where I've been a bit worried about somebody's results in those three days or four days when I'm not there, I have asked a colleague to follow up. And again, that's a handful of times a year. Most of the time, I've been able to give that continuity, even though without giving my phone number, even though um, I'm only there two days a week. So if you're passionate about it, and I don't understand how it can't be the bit of people's clinical work that gives them their satisfaction, you can, with a bit of thought, organise the way that we work to sustain continuity alongside giving rapid access where it's needed. Uh, very interesting. Um I have been at locuming the last few months and um, it's interesting when you see a person, a patient who you, you can recognise it quite easily, I think, maybe, maybe after, I think, yeah, that this person needs to see the same person and this isn't very helpful to them to, to, to come and tell tell me everything and then, you know, and then they're like, well, what do I do now? And saying, I'm sorry, I'm not I'm not going to be here is, isn't... Um, yeah, you can just read it on their faces sometimes, aren't you? The disappointment. And uh, so I and can. That's, um... that's where I'd say that how you organize your practice or your PCN is really yeah. important because, um, so increasingly, I think that with workforce shortages and, um, you know, the announcements that have been made about flexibilities for roles, PCNs could. So uh, there are some PCNs where the practices have merged and they are a single PCN, you know, for three, four, five former practices have come together, merged their contracts and become a PCN. You don't have to do it, but it's easier if you do. So they run a single access hub, yeah? And um, 
everybody, any patient from any of the practice goes for their acute care at the single access hub or two access hubs. They don't have one inside. And then the days that you work back in your own practice when you're not doing the acute work, you're giving continuity to people who know you. And in those practices, they've developed really good ways to let people know, look, don't come back here. You need to go and stick with your GP next time. They've got scripts for the receptionists. In my own practice, we just produce visiting cards, which said, this is your, I'm your usual doctor. This is your usual doctor's days when they're working. Make sure you come in with them. I had my own patter as a GP. Took about 15 seconds to say, you will get much better care. If you have continuity, I really suggest that for your follow up, you don't take the soonest appointment. You wait and see. You know, there's lots of ways around it. And although um, Therese Coffey's um, announcements said nothing about this, nothing about triage, nothing about making sure that the patients who are asking for appointments are shown steered to the clinician or professional who can be most effectively help them um you know if we're going to make the future work i think we have to get better about doing this triage sorting patient flows to the right person do you think this is the solution to the the gp retention problems like do you you think if we had better systems for this and we felt i suppose um guess enjoyed the job a bit more or or, or, and everything else that goes along with working in a in a well-functioning system that that we wouldn't be losing so many gps or is there more much more well i think so there's some really good research out of manchester university they do a biannual gp work-life survey and it's a really good summary of what people enjoy about their jobs and what's stressing them and it's got this table of job stresses um so workload is right up there but it's things like not being able to do the job as well as I want to. Media criticism is very toxic. Um, Pay and uh, does feature. Um, So there are lots of different elements. I think not everybody likes continuity, actually. Some people really like the acute stuff. And as we move towards this concentration on acute, multi-skilled, multi-professional acute services, actually, if you're a doctor that really likes acute bang 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 don't really get much enjoyment out of continuity you could spend more of your sessions there so there are ways of organizing that you can I think tailor people's working time to what they like most so that would help but I think until we have more capacity less pressure less people berating us for doing a bad job but also the systems, you know, it's not just about people berating us. It's about us creating good systems for patients so that they don't get funneled into the wrong patient, the wrong clinician and get frustrated and then start shouting. Because I think I would be shouting if I was funneled in some of the mm. ways that we send people. Mm. Mm. It does seem to happen. I don't know. Don't want to... <laughs> say say it's anything too controversial but yeah there's so much anecdotal sort of parents at the 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 gate sort of half the time they seem to be talking about their gps and how they didn't get access to them or didn't didn't get what they wanted and so there must be this must this is a big issue isn't it it's one we do need to tackle um about access and about accessing the right 
care at the right time, all, the, all that kind of well, stuff. Well, it's partly about access, so, but that thing that you just said about frustrated that they didn't get what they wanted um, mm. is, you know, that's such a big challenge because what people want, what the profession thinks they need, and what the system has the capacity to deliver are not always aligned. And that is really a moral set of moral questions about entitlement and how you spread scarce resources. And there is no easy answer to that. And I think that needs a big public debate. But politicians are simply not interested in acknowledging constraint and the need for prioritisation. So, um, yeah, there are organisations that do something called deliberative events where they carefully organise debates about issues where there is no right and wrong answer. It's more about morality and distribution of resources. And they're quite interesting and I, we, we need more of them. Again, not much of that in Therese Coffey's statement. Okay. Uh, were you going to so you unmute? No, I, I, then I've thought against saying what I was going to say because it's just me being cynical again which is about that you know that the frame I, I completely agree with what you're saying um Rebecca, but that the framing you know in that alignment of you, you know the, the framing often seems to be the, the the blame seems to lie at you know the health professional not agreeing with what you need and this sort of or you know what the health professional thinks you need uh that that's often it feels it can feel maybe this is just me as a kind of you know chip on my shoulder gp saying this but it can often feel like that's where the blame often falls um rather than you know that maybe the expectation needs some consideration maybe we need to discuss more about the sort of constraints on the system but then i thought again saying that because i'm sort of only contributing kind of cynical cynical uh views there are really interesting pressures now and I think you know I think the people's ability to look online and find options treatment options investigation options that may be relevant to them is fantastic and um, I think if you listen well in a consultation and you hear what people say about how their symptoms have changed and affected their lives and the information that they found I find that it it helps more or less but there are times where people come in and say I've looked it up and I want this and for me the classic consultation I had was somebody who came in with a a knee pain which they'd had for three or four days slightly twisted their knee I want an MRI and they it was on a day when I was doing had my 360 patient feedback so she had the feedback form in her hand and I thought I could just say, oh, yes, I'll refer you and get really nice feedback. Or I could just say, actually, I think we need to try X, Y and Z. And if that doesn't work, then I'll do the scan. And I thought and I just thought, no, I can't sell myself out for a bit of patient feedback. So I did the actually, you know, the guidelines tell us that we can try this. She was furious. I didn't do the scan. I suspect I got rubbish feedback. Um, but that's the domain where actually professional judgment underpinned by guidelines rubs up against um, a sort of inflexibility to accept professional judgment and to negotiate it. And I wasn't saying you can't have it. I was saying, let's try A, B and C first. That doesn't work then. It didn't result in a good outcome, I think, for that consultation. And the knee settled down. 
without an MRI. And you haven't had your feedback yet? I don't know, it's mushed into the whole Oh, fine. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess the learning is not to give the feedback forms to the patient before the consultation. That's not what we're meant to do, Tom. We're not meant to be selective. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> um, I mean, I could talk all day about this this side of it, but maybe we should move on. I I think so. I've I've been aware of that before. In fact, I wrote about this in a BMJ comment piece, and um, they. They did pull something out that they said may be identical. I, I, I don't know. I'll leave that up to you. So we're going to take a break. We'll be back in a couple of moments after this from our sponsor. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need someone you can turn to at any time. Medical protection is always here for you with expert medico-legal advice, including 24-7 in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims. We're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries, coroner inquests, criminal investigations, and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks, and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counselling service and e-care app, we're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org. Let's talk a bit more about the additional roles. And, uh, you know, we've been having pharmacists and other, other so non-GP cl- clinical roles um, joining the team, thanks to the primary care networks over the last couple of years. Um, how's how's that gone and and... What do you think we need to be doing better with that? Yeah, so um, in some places it's gone really well. I think it's a bit of a mixed bag and we are learning as we go. So I think um, perhaps some of the most important lessons are that if a PCN takes on a, with five practices, say, takes on a, a pharmacist or a physio and says you're doing one day in that practice and one day in that practice and one day in that practice, it kind of does their head in because they you know, they have to work on a different system every day, they don't get to know people, they feel isolated. So how you organise people is really important. And then you've got people who are transferring into primary care who've worked in other sectors, for whom actually working primary care is really different. So they have to learn new skills and build up confidence in them. And I think we probably learned a lot from the transition of pharmacists into primary care. So they had, when they joined, they had a national training programme, which I think was two years. I I think it shrunk down now to 18 months. But that was the time that was recognised it was going to take to learn about the the problems that present in general practice, the options for dealing with them, the specific roles that pharmacists could play within that. And alongside the time out for going to courses and peer learning and stuff like that they need 
a lot of support and supervision within practices. So um, it's really important to acknowledge that if you do take on a new role in the practice, you're going, one of your senior, probably most experienced GPs is going to need to give up some of their clinical time to supervise, to check into the notes for safety, to mentor, to be available to address problems. And that will tail off over time. But if you don't make those people available at the beginning, it's going to be a really difficult journey for the professions coming into general practice. And what we're seeing is that quite a lot of them leave because they just can't make it work in a way that they enjoy. It kind of adds extra pressure, doesn't it, to the the senior, you know, to that person who's the super, supervising them, who's probably feeling very um, torn between their clinical work and I think where I've worked, the, she might be listening, so I'm <laughs> careful what I say. But um, the, the person I'm thinking of, yeah, just there they weren't enough hours in the day to to do everything, and you know, everyone wants you know, patients want to see often the most senior GP who's been there a long time and. You know, very few appointments so just adding more pressure be. to you the have system to decide as a practice or a pcn how mm. you're going to set that up and whether you're going to give people a point you know cancel some appointments in order to deliver those support roles and what we learned in my own practice is that um it kind of tapers off so the first month or two that somebody's there you need to free up quite a lot of time but after that you know a couple of appointments every couple of weeks to go through cases and a bit of an open door policy, it, it, it tailors off, it tapers off over time. But yeah, you you are you're either going to be taking on extra work and extra pressure, which there is little ability to do at the moment, or you you cancel some clinical capacity in the in your senior clinicians. And as you say, they're often the people that are most in demand. Um, I suppose a similar criticism was was made at the beginning of the primary care networks and the, the number of GPs and the number of GP hours taken away from appointment times was huge, wasn't it? And uh, again, uh, looking back on that now and how things are going, um, I think I'm still not sure if I if I would do it all again. Yeah, so, but, I mean, um, I think Therese Coffey's statement was also pretty silent about the kind of support I said about the detailed support for practices, but also about the kind of PCN primary care network federation larger scale organization uh debates that are going on and most pcns are really small and they just don't have their own management and organizational capacity so at that point actually some of the federations which are bigger some of them now have got staff of 20 30 40 people they can if I, I'll get back to what I said earlier about thinking differently. If we think about trying to do everything in our own practices, and some people really want to keep doing that, you just end up running faster and faster and faster on the hamster wheel. I was at a meeting the other day where a GP there said he felt like he was on the hamster wheel of doom. Um, so if you want to get off the hamster wheel of doom, you've got to find some ways of doing differently, doing things differently, and actually handing off admin and HR and organizational things like rotors to a federation strikes me as an excellent thing to do some people think it's absolutely criminal so you know you make your choices yeah yeah depends what you think of your federation I suppose yeah Um. yeah no I mean there's a lot of people that 
there's a lot of people that act in great tension with their federation. Uh, and I, if they've got a bad federation, then that might be understandable. But I think often it's just a kind of local protectionism. I want in my practice because yeah, otherwise you're yeah. taking my money away. Well, if you want to run faster on the hamster wheel of doom, then fine. But if not, find somebody else to do the work for you. And that may be a federation that's, you know, should understand your local organisations. But that's a, a wider discussion. So so I guess with the additional roles is maybe an example, I suppose the uh, different models of access might be another example of how things just feel very complicated and, you know, I'm somebody who, who struggles to kind of keep it all in my head, let alone for a patient, which maybe must be very confusing. Um, is there an argument for a much more streamlined, dare, dare I say it, more traditional approach that actually is just simpler for so everybody? That's a, that's a really good question. So there are still some small practices in communities where the local doctor knows the local population and probably actually they're working quite well um so i i have been talking as if it's obvious that things should scale up but um there are a few places left i think where small is still beautiful and working well and um research shows that generally patients in small practices are much more satisfied with all aspects of their care so i think it depends you know, in, in the big cities where there's more patient turnover, there's more staff turnover, you can't build up those long-term relationships. One of the reasons I love continuity is because if you know somebody, I, you can do in two minutes what somebody who's never met them before will take 25 minutes to do because they have to pour through their whole history. So, um, uh, you know, there are situations where that small localness can be efficient and satisfying all round. But I think the reality for more people is that with staffing shortages and turnover, actually having to find a solution which is different from just working locally and small is probably more, more likely, you know, it's, it's more what's needed. Um, uh, the, the crunch for me is that we've really got to make sure that the patients with the greatest needs are the ones that sees the the ones that see the GP, not the person who developed a sore throat two days ago, doesn't have a fever, and is just very quick on the telephone. And um, that is about triage and sorting, and it that is only going to work. Triage is only going to work well when we have the right systems in our practices. And patients and their relatives and carers trust the arrangements that we put in place. And that requires not just practices to bring in new access arrangements and more appointments that we may not be able to come up with, but really requires that debate with the public, with patients, with carers, with families about self-care, about, um, you know, trusting professional judgment about options for self-care for minor illness stuff like that so that practices can be more available to people with more serious problems 
I think that's such a good point, Rebecca. Um, we published an analysis paper looking at different triage models in the UK. And there are so many different challenges to overcome in order to make sure that the correct people are seen at the correct time. Um, at, including, you know, making sure that the triage system is accessible, that you have people available to monitor requests for appointments coming in, and that you're, you know, constantly reviewing, you know, who is being seen by whom and at what time. So I think that's just a really important point. Yeah, and the I think, you know, the additional roles, the extra practice support staff that have been promised could really help us to do that. But that's where I said it takes quite a lot of time and effort and really thoughtful design to think about how to use them well. And that's why you need the organisational development support. So if I could wave my magic wand um, over the policymakers, I would, A, really give a chunk of support to all practices and PCNs around organisational development to get access right. Yeah, to not just get people in quickly who dial at eight o'clock in the morning, but to really sort the right patients into the right kind of care. And some of that may be going to these new pharmacist appointments. And the other magic wand that I would wave would be to really improve public understanding of why this is happening, why all their requests can't be met, but to really push the fact that it's not that they'd be getting bad care it's that they'll be getting different care. And if they get a complex need where a GP's input is really needed, they will be able to get that appointment because the GPs aren't full of sore throat appointments kind of thing. So those would be my two shakes of the magic wand, um, in addition to, you know, thousands of extra GPs, which of course we know we need. Oh, thank you. Well, maybe before we go, would you like a third shake of the magic wand for something non-GP related? You know, not to put you on the spot, but... Uh... <laughs> I think I'd probably go to Alaska or Machu Picchu or something like that. It certainly wouldn't be a beach on the bar. In, in a magical new transportation mode, absent carbon de- carbon emissions, right? Absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I'd speed walk um, my way there. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Rebecca. It's been really interesting. And uh, please, yeah, come back again. And uh, yeah, we, we'd like to talk about the partnership model. We, well, maybe that's another episode. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, yeah, well, thank you, Jenny and Navjoy. Uh, see you next time. Okay. Bye. Really, really informative. Uh, and um, thank you and goodbye to, to Jenny and Navjoy. Bye, bye, Jenny. See you next time. Bye, Tom. See you next time. And Navjoy. Thanks so much. See you next time. Uh, and I hope you're enjoying Deep Breath In. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Um, rate us on the App Store or um, send us an email. Our email address is practice at bmj.com. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. Bye for now.